today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 47 through chapter 15. God commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites and all their possession as punishment for their attack on Israel when they left Egypt. Saul obeyed partially, but spared their king Agag and the best of their animals. So the prophet Samuel confronted Saul for his disobedience and told him that Yahweh had rejected him as king. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Thursday, May 18th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Many thanks to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online at lhfmissions.org to learn more about their translating and publishing work. Well, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us explore the end of chapter 14 and all of chapter 15. It's the Reverend Luke Brown, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Ellsworth, Kansas. Pastor Brown, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you. Well, it's always great to have you on. I pray that things have been going well for you. Off the air, we talked about how busy it was, even though it's supposed to slow down right now, isn't it? Well, that's what I've always thought, but that hasn't happened yet. And then just uh, a lot of things going on. It's a very interesting time. Well, I'm just glad that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to be with us here on the air and to talk about the exploits of King Saul and and uh, how God's dealing with him and using him. And, well, it sounds like he's rejecting him in this text, but we'll, we'll go through all that. Uh, but before we get into our text for today, I think it'd be great if we started off with prayer, and I invite you to lead us in that prayer. Okay. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for the blessings that you have given us. Lord, you call us to, to follow you, and we know we do not do that perfectly, but we give thanks. You sent your son, Jesus, who does follow you perfectly, and he follows you perfectly for us. We ask you, Lord, to help us to, to follow you better, but also to help keep us ever mindful that you have um, won the victory for us. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been going through 1 Samuel. We've come to the end of 14. It uh, took us actually a couple episodes to get all the way through 14. But now that we're at the end, it kind of sums things up, and I'm just going to start by reading uh, our passage from 14, verses 47 through 52. When Saul had taken kingship over Israel, he fought against his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malachishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger was Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul, strong, Saul, any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Well, that's where we'll end. 
Well, that last verse is a little bit of a tongue twister. And when Saul saw any strong man, that's what I was trying to say. So we have here Saul, and it looks like it's just giving us a little bit of a summary of his exploits, um, because I guess he falls into some disfavor coming up in the next chapter. But but take us a little bit, where have we been, and, and what, is, what is being summed up here, and why are we summing up Saul at this point? Well, I, th- I think you know, this is kind of his career, what he's been doing so far. Uh, sounds like he's had success. Uh, he's done well. Um, you know, his family's growing. Everything is is going fine. He's uh, he is doing what a king should do, defeating the enemies. What a king should do, but certainly not. He's not. He's acting like a king that would be a king of any other nation. In fact, well, that's, that's what, what they, they asked wanted. for, right? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> no, what I was going to say. That's exactly what they wanted. That's what isn't a king, it? That wanted a king like the other day, like the other nations. And so here they have a king like the other nations. And here that's uh, good for Israel. But maybe in chapter fifteen they will see that they have a king like the other nations, and the other nations have rejected God. Yeah, we do see here, though, he is exercising God's judgment against these nations. He's inflicting punishment, uh, the Scriptures could be read to say in verse 47. Um, it says fought against, um, but it could also be, you know, inflicting punishment. He He's the one going off and doing God's work, or God's working through him, I guess it's important to say. We have a list of a few uh, sons and his father and um, it does sound like things are wrapping up. This is you're you're getting this is the type of text that you might get at the beginning or the very end, um, which makes sense because of what happens in verse fifteen. Uh, but uh, anything here that we should focus on before we read into verse into, into chapter fifteen? Pardon me. Uh, you know, the uh, people, the countries that he uh, defeats, those are. You know, they they have long they are uh, have been opponents of Israel in the past Moab Ammonites Edom and they are uh, ethnic they have an ethnic relationship with them I don't think Zobah did uh, and then they always fight against the Philistines that's a yeah. Philistines are always there to kick around. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because yeah, there was hard fighting against the Philistines. All the days of Saul. It kind of takes us back to Samuel's warning. He said, uh, this was going to be Samuel 8, uh, let's see here, verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and <laughs> yeah. to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for him commanders of thousands of fifties, etc., etc., etc. The point is, there's going to be war the whole time he's around. And that, of course, has come to pass. Let's get into verse 15, uh, chapter 15, pardon me, chapter 15, which is the focus of our study today. And I'm going to read just the first three verses. And Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel, 
and donkey. So, just stopping right there, Samuel the prophet has come to this king who's been fighting in the name of God this whole time. He certainly doesn't do it all perfectly, but now he's given a task, and the task seems, I guess, overly harsh to our modern ears. God tells him to go off and destroy and basically wipe off the face of the earth, the Amalekites. Yeah. It's, it's fairly clear there's no wiggle worm, no wiggle words in there. It's wipe them out. Yeah, there certainly isn't anything that says, you know, well, if you find any evil people among them or anything like that, it's wipe them out all the way down to the children and infants, even yeah. their animals. Everybody must be wiped out. So is God's judgment against the people. Why is God judging the people so harshly, though? That's always, you know, because they had sinned. Now that their their sin was so great that he and he wanted to purify the land. Uh, you know, he wanted to, to wipe them out to purify the land. He calls the Israelites to to do this to to wipe all these people out. If they don't, it's going to be they're they're going to uh, infect the Israelites and. Uh, they're going to uh, not be able to follow God. They're going to distract them. Uh, and, of course, the Israelites do not wipe them out, and they are distracted, and it's not long before they are doing as bad as these people are, if not worse. Yeah, we've seen that time and again. When we were going through Judges especially, yeah. we saw how the people would follow after the gods of the other people. Um, you know, we also see that the Amalekites are called out, I suppose, for a specific sin here, because he says, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. But the reason why is because what Amalek did to Israel, in verse 2, in imposing them, when they came up out of the land of Egypt. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth heading back just for a moment to Exodus chapter 17. They were defeated there, which is good news, but it was still a battle. So it says, then Amalek, this is, a, pardon me, Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, go choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I think often, brother, when we look at that text, we think of the holding up the prophet's hands aspect of yeah. it, because... We hear about battles all the time, but now that battle is coming back to haunt the Amaleks. They're saying, hey, God's saying, hey, go and wipe them out completely. Kill all of them. Um, what would you say to someone in modern times? I mean, besides us just saying, hey, you know, God's God, what do we say to them when they, when they might think, well, the God of the Old Testament seems so, seems so harsh and heavy-handed? Uh, certainly the women and the children specifically didn't do anything. I mean, how can we defend God's reaction here? Well, it's hard to defend God. <laughs> you well, not usually, that we need to, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's hard to, uh, you know, 
perhaps explain is we, the we best would we would do no different. We would also, you know, they, they're called wipe out. You know, they they are being eliminated from the land because they've done so badly. Um, he wants to purify the land. Yet the Israelites come in and they do just as bad as not worse. And so, if God were fair, what should God do to the Israelites? Well, He should wipe them out and try with somebody else. But the same thing would happen. So he doesn't wipe them out. He sends somebody. He sends a savior. He sends Jesus. Right. So if if God were treating us fairly, then yeah. we would be not in the place of Israel, but in the place of the Amalekites here. Yeah. And I think it does. You're right. It, it We often will try to get God off the hook, explain away his justice. But I think it's much more profitable for us to say, Look at God's response. He has sent his son Jesus so that we don't have to suffer the fate of the Amalekites. But nevertheless, Saul, as the earthly ruler, is to go off and exercise punishment on behalf of God, and and that's what he's going to do. Um, We're going to read into that, starting now with verse 4 through verse 9. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Well, there's a couple people popping up again, and the first of which is the Kenites. Uh, Kenites are famous for one particular woman, I think, <laughs> at least in biblical history, uh, for Jael, who who killed uh, one of Israel's enemies during the time of the judges. That's always what I think about <laughs> when I think of the Kenites. But yeah, they're hanging out there with the Amalekites. Yeah. Take us through this passage and explain to us what's going on. Uh, he uh, he goes out there and. You know, it's always funny when they when we pick and choose. God says do this, but we say, well, maybe He didn't really mean that. Uh, he goes out there. Uh, Saul goes and he he fights, but he does not do what God tells him to do. He says, well, God, God couldn't have meant that I was supposed to kill Agag. Uh, he he couldn't mean that I was supposed to kill all of the best of the flock, the bad stuff. Yeah, we could take care of, but uh, you know, we'll do something else with the with the good. You know, God couldn't have met that, could he? I think we usually get into trouble when we when we do that. Yeah, they look at it and they go, Well, that's still useful. We could use that. You know, why would yeah. we, that'd be a waste. It would it wouldn't be good stewardship to kill all of those good calves and those fatted <laughs> calves and you know, but it's like, no, God God says devote that to destruction. <laughs> what part of what part of that did you not understand? Well, exactly. <laughs> Why do you think he kept Agag the king alive, though? In professional courtesy or what? 
I have no idea why you would keep him alive. <laughs> That'd be the one of the first you'd kill, wouldn't it? <laughs> I always well, think of Saul. If you're going to have somebody play Saul in the right. movie, uh, I, I like, uh, I'd have uh, maybe Biff from Back to the Future. <laughs> uh, he, he's tall. He's an impressive looking guy, but he really is kind of a goofus, kind of a doof. And he keeps stumbling all over himself and. <laughs> I love that because, you know, obviously by letting Agag live, or Agog, I don't know how to pronounce it, but but Saul does not fully obey God's decree. <laughs> so he's so the point is he's selectively obedient, which is what you brought out. But it's but you do, you wonder, it's like, but what is the what could possibly be the reasoning there? So many times Saul does that. What on earth are you thinking? You want to go and shake him? Bonehead. Well, and I wonder if it has anything to do with 1452, because it says when Saul saw any strong man, it's hard to say, or yeah. any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now, that, of course, means people of Israel, that he could surround himself with the most most strong and important people, and you know mm-hmm. he could exercise his kingship that way. But I almost wonder, and again, we're just speculating. We don't know. You're right. We don't know. But it makes me wonder if he's thinking— well, this Agag, I respect him as a, an opponent. I respect him as a fighter, as an enemy. I think I'll spare him. Anyway, it doesn't make sense that it, whenever we disobey God, it's always irrational because God is the, the source of our life and our faith. But sometimes it's more irrational than other times because there doesn't seem to be any good reason for it. I don't know if he thought Agag, he could have Agag join him and be a commander in his army. Right. Uh, but that wouldn't make any sense because you'd always be having to watch your back. Well, uh, absolutely. And Agag's never going to be like, you know, um, want to be second fiddle after being king of the Amalekites. Doesn't make so, any sense to me. No, right. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, what's interesting, too, and we have covered Esther on this show not too long ago, but in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, um, the Haman, who is the enemy of the Jews, mm-hmm. uh, just such a great book. I, I enjoyed going through that so much on the air. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they refer to Haman as Haman the Agagite, or Agite, Agagite, yeah. it's hard to say. And so the the theories that we discussed on the program were, well, was he a descendant of Agag, somehow related to Agag? But most scholars believe it's just kind of a slur. It's mm-hmm. It's more of a derogatory title. He's the Agagite. It's almost like saying he's a Cretan, even though he's not from Crete. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is the Agag that's being talked about, by the way, folks. So if you were with us for the Esther program and you were wondering who the Agag was of the Agite, that, that's what's going on here. So yeah, Agag, uh, the king of the Amalekites, he stayed alive and they devoted destruction, all the people. Interestingly, he spares the king. He spares the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fattened calves, and the lambs, which we all ex- would, we kind of understand why he does that, because he wants them for himself. But it doesn't say, I guess it doesn't not say, but still, in terms of the women and children, it looks like he followed that command. And then the very last line of the section we read was, they kept all the good stuff, and all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to stretch a point here, but isn't that kind of what we do too in the church? It's like whenever you have a food drive, it, you get 14 cans of cream corn with dents in them, 
<laughs> and it's kind of like you just went through your cabinet and you're like, we're never going to eat this. Let's donate it. And or it's that it's that peanut butter that you bought and you didn't like it. So you had an unopened one. So you're going to you're going to donate that. We tend to donate sort of not the best of what we have to the church or even to our neighbor, but we dedicate the and devote the the things that we despise or are worthless. Uh, again, not to make too much of a point of it, but I just that's just what came to my mind. What do you think, brother? Well, it's one of the blessings of uh, some people have a parsonage that is uh, furnished. And usually what goes into the furnishings of a parsonage is what doesn't sell after three garage sales. <laughs> you and I could have some stories, but not on the air about that one, right? <laughs> Couldn't we? At some churches, I, you know, I have no experience, but uh, I, you certainly hear from others about that. No, absolutely. I, I actually don't think—I think if I had a parsonage that was uh, furnished, mm-hmm. I would— uh, I would volunteer to store those furnishings elsewhere (laughs) (laughs) would you would you like your grandchildren to live here exactly exactly (laughs) oh you know it is kind of funny though but we do we do that to the church and it's funny you say that because we're throwing out a lot of stuff um at our congregation just just stuff that's junk that's accumulated over the years and we've already for those who are in the congregation who listen to the program it's too late we already got rid of it uh, but, <laughs> that's a danger but, to do that <laughs> yes it is but the but the point is sometimes things get donated to the church because they don't have any other use and they just feel bad throwing them away and, and it doesn't it doesn't always mean they have the worst of intentions but that sometimes happens well i'll tell you what i don't want to belabor this topic we should keep going in the text but i think this is a good time for us to take a break so folks don't go anywhere when we come back after these short messages pastor brown and i will keep on going through Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because Good Lutheran Books for Kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Luke Brown, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Ellsworth, Kansas. Folks, thank you for joining us this morning. I pray that our study of God's Word blesses you. If you know someone who might like Thy Strong Word or listening to the show, be sure to let them know that they can tune in over the air in St. Louis at AM850, but they don't have to. You can listen live or on demand at KFUO.org. They can hear the program as a podcast on KFUO's own mobile app or on whatever their favorite podcasting platform is. And here's another great way to tune in. I just heard about it. If you have a smart speaker, you can just ask it to tune to KFUO, and they will. As always, I'm available to answer your questions, um, or if you have any feedback, send it to me at PastorBoo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R. B-O-O-E at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Just drop by and say hello. 
Thank you for being loyal listeners. Now back to the Bible. Well, Pastor Brown, before the break, you know, we were contemplating on just why King Saul did the things he did, but sometimes sin is unexplainable. Probably worth us just continuing in the narrative to see what happens next. Uh, So we're going to read verses 10 through 16. The word of Yahweh came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to Yahweh all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, Yahweh, I have performed the commandment of Yahweh. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what Yahweh said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Now, before we get into what he said, so Yahweh comes to Samuel, and he says, I regret. Now, that word regret is a little bit interesting. Um, We Certainly God can lament. God um, can—I guess regret almost gives the connotation that it is— something that he—it's like if you do something, had you known better, you wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. But of course, God, knowing all things, Mm -hmm. knew what would happen. In fact, he even revealed it through Samuel, so it should be of no surprise to anyone, especially God. So why do we get this regret language? You know, that's uh, interesting, because so usually, you know, we like to focus on God being compassionate and long-suffering and you know, uh, you know, but here he says regret. He did that back in Genesis before the flood. I am sorry, and uh, you know, I, th- I think he is sorry. Maybe he regrets. Maybe what Saul has done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I am sorry that I have made Saul king. Right. Divine regret. That is a uh, you know for for somebody who's all knowing. You know, and you, you look at Jesus, who you know chooses Judas to be a disciple, knowing full well what's going to happen. And uh, yeah, divine yeah. regret. I mean, it's tough because we know that God, right, does not change His yeah. mind, and mm-hmm. so the regret. You know, it does mean though that He's going to change His action. So I mean, we can talk about what we do know, right? Which is, you know, if God says, "All right, what I've done so far." I'm I'm not happy with how it's resulted, even though he knew how it would re- how it would turn out. Um, I'm I'm now going to change that, right? So, regardless of how we interpret divine regret, that'd be that'd be worth a dissertation, wouldn't it? Well, uh, somebody <laughs> ought to do that. I bet somebody has. <laughs> oh, I'm you know, sure. It's interesting sure. that you know that God says He regrets this, but He does not zap Saul mm-hmm. with lightning. He sends Samuel, right. and uh, you know Samuel. I think he gives him a, a chance to uh, acknowledge his sin and to uh, confess he, his sin. Absolutely, and 
which is, of course, the nature of God that he, he has explained to us, the part he wants us to know, is that in that, in that way he continues to be long-suffering. You're right, he could just have—well, uh, first of all, he could have never given in to the people at all, but then they would have never learned anything. He could have not given Saul uh, the kingship through Samuel. But I do, I do have to laugh because I'm sure it's probably interpreted better than the way I'm interpreting it. But once Yahweh comes to Samuel and tells him this, it says, <laughs> And Samuel was angry, and he cried to Yahweh all night. Um, as a pastor who's had to make difficult uh, decisions, who's had to approach people about difficult topics, especially mm -hmm. the topic of calling them out on their sin, um, I can feel that a little bit. I think it's then amplified if the guy you're going to call out is the supreme commander of all the armies and the king of everything. Um, but but even interacting with our fellow Christians, you know, it can drive us to perhaps anger is not the word for me, but it would definitely be one of anxiety and yeah. and and trepidation. And it's like, I, I want to do this right. But then you also have this in the back of your head. Lord, why have you put me in this position to have to do this? Is that why Samuel is angry or is there some or is he just angry at Saul, which also is certainly possible? Well, say, you know, there's a lot of emotion here because Samuel was unhappy that they wanted to they wanted a king and they were unhappy that they didn't uh, choose uh, Samuel's sons to be the leader. Uh, they chose Saul. So, you know, he, he's just kind of ticked off. At a, and then he's unhappy that Saul has been so ham-handed and, and, and foolish. Uh, so there's just a lot going on here that he's not real happy about. That's true. I didn't think about this, but certainly there's some, uh, I told you so in this anger too. <laughs> what do you think was going to happen? <laughs> right. I mean, because it doesn't say he's angry with anybody in particular. He just says he's angry. Perhaps he's a little angry at God for allowing everything to transpire. Perhaps he's certainly angry at Saul for being such a meathead. Maybe he's angry at the people, too, for not heeding his word early on. But regardless, in verse 12, he gets up early to go see uh, Saul, to go meet the king. And um, it was told to Samuel uh, that Saul had come to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. What, could, what is that about? <laughs> I have no idea. Why, why would he do that? What a, what a dunderhead. <laughs> well, this is his biff coming out, right? Because, biff, yeah, how great I art. <laughs> right, because God says, listen, you need to go. You need to wipe all these people out. And he gets there and he goes, well, God tells me to wipe them out. But what my opinion is, it's better than God's. I'm going to keep the good stuff. Yeah. And then he sets up a monument to himself, like, you know, here's the great King Saul. His arrogance and his pride, we're obviously going to see again when David gets on the scene. Uh, we all kind of know the Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. Uh, yeah. It's roughly said. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, anger going to come out of, of Saul's pride later on. But yeah, here he sets up this monument to himself. But then when he's confronted by Samuel, and rightly so, he's like, is he lying? I wonder, because he says it's almost a little bit like Aaron, where he says the the idol just popped out of the fire. He's sort of lying, saying, 
Well, maybe he's not lying, but regardless, he's he's trying to justify him disobeying God by saying, well, I was going to take all these good things and sacrifice them to God. And, and my gut is that he wasn't going to do that and is now because he's being confronted by Samuel. But per, either way, it doesn't matter. He disobeyed God. And he's, he's kind of starting the blame game. You'll see it later because he says, for the people spared the best of the oh, sheep and the oxen. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the people did spare it, but obviously the king is the king. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that's not what I wanted to do. That's what they did. Mm, that's true. That's true. So he says that uh, they, they, as you pointed out, brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. <laughs> but the rest we did, right? The rest we destructed. So, and I think that line of line of reasoning is something that we can identify with too. You know, we yes, we've sinned, but here's all the good things that we've done. Um, and I think it reminds us that God wants us to be perfect. And that's a hard saying, but Jesus says it too. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we rightly go, well, we can't be perfect because of our concupiscence, because of our sin, and all that's true, which is why we need God's grace and mercy and salvation. But unless we remember that God calls us to perfection, which is the law, then it's difficult for us to appreciate why we receive the gospel, why we receive the grace. And so I think that's a little bit what's going on here. He can't just say, well, I did most of it right. He has to take ownership for disobeying God, no matter how small the, the grievance is. I always wonder, you know, you know, I just ask our confirmation kids, you know, does God grade on the scale? <laughs> right. I always say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than the guy down the street. Well, that's not good enough. God doesn't grade on the scale. It's pass fail. That's right, pass fail. And he doesn't grade on a curve. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't grade on the curve. Yeah, we know some people who are so bad that everybody else is pretty good in comparison. Well, that was uh, me. I set the bar pretty low. <laughs> oh, brother. Well, we ended our section with Samuel saying to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what Yahweh said to me this night. And Saul goes, All right, tell me, speak. Let's hear. Starting with verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Yahweh anointed you king over Israel, and Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh. I have gone on the mission on which Yahweh sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites pardon me, to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in Gilgal. Let's stop there with the end of verse 21. So the, the, the blame game, as you pointed out, is, continues to be very strong. I think it's pretty bold for him, knowing that he didn't follow God's will, to insist that he did. The blame game's as old as Genesis 3. Yes, that very woman famous. that you gave me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
and and while we've we've heard it twice now, and it's not completely unheard of in Scripture, it just gives it new meaning when he says things like Yahweh, your, your God. God, your God. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's another red flag. Hmm. I mean, it's again, it's not completely unheard of in the way they describe things, but in the context here, you know, when 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 God says it's grieved him that he's reject, I mean, sorry, that he's uh. He has uh, uh, chosen Saul as king. Really, the title shouldn't necessarily be, which is the ESV authors give it to it, the Lord rejects Saul. It almost should really be Saul rejects God, because that's the focus here. God, Yahweh would not have rejected Saul had he followed his will. So the rejection doesn't come from God just randomly saying, okay, now I don't like Saul. It comes from Saul rejecting God. And now we even hear it in his language, you know, your God, Samuel. And, and you, again, I don't want to add too much or anything to Scripture, but you almost hear him thinking, this little prophet is causing me a lot of trouble. <laughs> I, I just want to rule as a king. I don't want to have to keep answering to this prophet and his God. He but never again, says anything good him. about me. I, he's always jumping on my rear end. <laughs> well, and don't we experience that as pastors too, right? <laughs> we certainly we want to be encouraging to people, but at the same time, there is part of the role of pastor, and frankly, every Christian has this responsibility to call one another to account when necessary. But yeah, if that's all you hear, then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna despise it, and that's despising the word of the Lord. Yeah. Well. So he says, I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh. I've, I went on the mission that he sent me on. I brought the Agag, the king of Amalek. I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He kind of glosses over the fact that that second part wasn't part of what God told him to do. He didn't tell him to bring out Agag. He told him to kill him, to destroy him. He's a good politician. He is a good politician. <laughs> he sneaks that right in. Verse 22 through 23. Samuel responds, and Samuel said, Has Yahweh as great, pardon me, has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrificings as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. I think this reveals a couple things. The first of which is, um, he, they, I don't think they had any plans on sacrificing those things to God. I think that it was for himself. But the point here is that obedience is greater than sacrifice. It take us through this part. Like, what, what are we learning here? And what, what, what should be Saul learning here? Uh, he wants us to obey. He wants us to listen. Uh, and, you know, I don't listen. I don't obey. There are, there are many sins that I have not committed, but I commit the sin of not listening and not obeying. And yeah, I do it every day. Find, it's easy to find ourselves even in the place, you know, we're not kings, we don't have the same responsibility as King Saul did, but we certainly can find ourselves in the place of not obeying God as we should, not listening as we should, making our will equal to that of God's will or to override God's will, 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something we have to be uh, really cognizant of that, you know, we, we kind of look back and we think, oh, what a, you know, he's, he's king and he's doing all these, these sinful things, but don't we, don't we also? Well, let's see how Saul responds to this, starting with verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before Yahweh. You know, I just want to stop right there. So, so I, I know it keeps going, but I'm, the pause is for this reason. He almost gets it right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've sinned. Good, you have. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Yeah, you have. And your words as his prophet. Yeah. Because I feared the people and obeyed their oh, voice. You know, no, it's, no. it's like, it's like, yeah, that's that's kind of true. You you shouldn't have feared their but but you're still blaming it on the people, man. You're the king. They're gonna do whatever you tell them to do. You know, when David uh gets caught with uh, bat, he, he's confronted with uh the sin of Bathsheba and uh and her husband, he says, I have sinned. And he doesn't blame Bathsheba. She shouldn't have been bathing out there. He doesn't blame society. He doesn't blame, doesn't do the blame game. He says, I have sinned. And if, if Saul has a period, if he says, I have sinned, and he shuts up, yeah, you know, that's what, he, instead he starts to, I, I sinned because, I, he justifies himself. I sinned because of this. I sinned because of that. No, I, I sinned. I am right. a sin because I'm a sinner. <laughs> and this must explain Samuel's response, which we're going to hear. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Regret. All right, we're going to pause there. So, <laughs> first of all, you just got to love it when an illustration falls into your lap. <laughs> this happens to us as pastors, you know, just some great illustration or something that proves the point, maybe in maybe in the newspaper or, or in the news or something's happened. You know, here he is. He's he says, nope, sorry, God's done with you, which is what what Saul's really afraid of is not being king, not really, a, you know, sinning against God. And as he turns away, Saul seizes the skirt of his robe and he tears it. And Samuel looks down, sees that tear and says, yep, it's exactly what God has done to you. <laughs> it's like, man, that'll preach. That'll preach. It usually happens on Tuesday for last Sunday's sermon. Man, that would have been what? I know. It always happens <laughs> that way. <laughs> I'll try to remember this for another two and three, four yeah. years. Yeah, I was going to say in three years, right. <laughs> oh, but that's, but that is exactly um, what happens though. You know, he, he says, well, God knows better than anyone when, I, when someone's repentance is true. Right? We're not judging the repentance. God's judging the repentance. But he does respond. Um, Saul says, then Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before Yahweh your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before Yahweh. 
All right, pausing yet again. So this is where we're at so far. You know, what's your take on on this so far? I think you know he, he wants uh, Samuel to go with him to build him up as king and to reinforce his standing as king. Uh, he wants to be king. He wants to show his power uh, before his before his people, which I think reveals a little bit about his heart because mm-hmm. his fear is not being king. And when Samuel turns to go away from him, it's Saul isn't seizing him because he's like, please give me a chance to obey God. He's like, I just don't want to look bad in front of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that is something else. You know, we have to remember that that it, whatever vocation we uh, occupy, we do it for the service of the Lord. And that is at the heart of Saul's sin here is that everything from praising himself to setting up his own little monuments to disobeying God's word and replacing his own opinion with it. Saul is demonstrating that he is not following after God, but following after his own ways. Well, there's a little bit more. We're going to start with verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. (laughs) And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before Yahweh in Gilgal. All right, that's worth another pause. So, you, you know, know things... I, wish, I wish I would have not used that for my VBS lesson. You're right. Things escalated quickly. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, though, that would make it a fantastic VBS. We could start with Noah's Ark, but only focus on all the floating corpses because of God's judgment. <laughs> well, move let me on, know how that goes. Move on to jail with the, with the uh, spike in the guy's head. And then now, yeah, we got to wrap it up with uh, Samuel hacking the king into pieces before. Well, you know, that's like the Hunger Games VBS, you know. That yes. was, you know I, let me know it, how that goes. Yeah, it, it's your last VBS you'd ever do, but it'd be worth it. <laughs> My last Sunday here. <laughs> but, but you know, we do see here something interesting, though. So, so where the king has failed, here God's prophet is having to take up the slack. And he does. He exercises this on behalf of God. But obviously what stands out is Agag just bouncing in cheerfully. His entire nation has been destroyed. And and what does he say? He's basically saying, you know, there's no problem here. I'm not worried about any. I don't got a worry in the world. Oh, hey, think, Sam. You know, he's probably expecting to, you know, that he can take over, uh, that he can you know, he probably sees Saul as a mutton head, and he thinks that mm-hmm. I can take him over and uh, take over, uh, take over this uh, this people. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, he he's just he's just thinking. Well, you know, oh well, I I think I I mean I guess he could be resigned to his fate, but I don't think some some scholars say you know well he's come in and he's recognized that he'll be killed. No, I don't think so. I think uh-huh. you're absolutely right. I think. Saul has made him some promises that are something that's not been revealed to us and uh, or something like that. But he's 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 definitely uh, overconfident. And, and this man of God, he's a softy. He'll, he may, he'll, he'll, surely he'll forgive me. Surely he'll pardon me. And right. I could go him. on he's, doing what I've done before. Yeah, look at him. He's wearing a like a robe and a skirt. Part of and, it's torn. And it's even torn. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so 
Well, but I think what's really fascinating here, and we addressed this at the very beginning, and I asked you, I said, you know, God has ordered that the women and children be demolished along with the rest of the Amalekites. And, you know, it's difficult for us, not that we have to defend God, but it's difficult for us to explain that. Well, Samuel does a pretty good job right here. Samuel Mm -hmm. says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. I think part of that is um, the reality that Agag himself is responsible for the destruction of the people at the hands of God. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't blame God for exercising judgment. We have to blame those who are who are sinning that brings the judgment upon themselves, even if that means blaming ourselves, which Saul has refused to do. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before Yahweh and Gilgal. I assume that means... I don't know. What does that mean before Yahweh? Just for the purposes of Yahweh's judgment, or did he do it in the worship space? I don't know. I be a worship service. Yeah. You sorry you missed that Sunday. That's right. Where is that in the agenda? <laughs> does that, that where does that come, does that come before the offering? Right. So you'd have to so, want it before the offering. Well, there are a lot of times, you know, the the gospel reading, and you and you know, really it ends, you know, kind of tough, and you say, oh, "This is the word. This is the gospel of the Lord." Yeah. Yeah, I sometimes put a question mark on it too. Yeah, this, this is the gospel of this the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. <laughs> this is good news, people. <laughs> oh my goodness! You know, if we keep it up, they're going to give us a a, a morning well. ride time show. <laughs> so, well, let's finish out our text. We only have a couple more verses left. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The very next person who's going to be introduced to us is David, and for Mm -hmm. obvious reasons. But as we finish up our chapter here, Samuel is grieving over Saul. It's a little different than anger this time. Yahweh still has divine regret here, but I think it's been pretty explained why. Not because Yahweh had made a mistake, he can't, but because he regrets that things have turned out the way they had, or they had to turn out the way they did. Uh, I think of God regretting that he made man during the flood. You know, we mm-hmm. see that regret time and again. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd be, whenever we're in confirmation class, you know, we, you know, God, God's in charge. God knows everything. And God puts, you know, appoints leaders. And, and so you have, you know, somebody like Hitler. Did God put Hitler there? Well, this is a tough question. Uh, you know, he would have done that. He did not, you know, order Hitler to do what he did. Now, he doesn't, you know, he you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. Uh, but that does not mean that God has told them to do that. But God could put them in that position, and he put Saul in that position, but he regretted, you know, what Saul had done. But he was, uh, he was, uh, the people wanted a king like the nations, like the other nations had. And so here they have a king like the other nations have. The other nations have rejected God. And here you have a king who is rejecting God. 
I think that we have to realize that we can't let God off the hook, just as you said. You know, God doesn't cause sin in the world. He doesn't order sin in the world. But God does allow sinful people to rule and sinful people to sin. And even if that sin is egregious, and God does allow those things to happen. And I know that brings a lot of anger in us sometimes when we don't understand God's will and ways. We'll have to wait sometimes. We have to trust that God God is is protecting his people. We have to trust in God that he knows best, even when from our point of view, it doesn't seem right. I mean, that's what, on a small scale, that's what Saul was doing. He was like, no, this doesn't make right that God said this. I'm going to do it my own way. And that's a sin. At the same time, of course, you know, God points us to Christ, Christ who who saves us from the wickedness of our hearts, which we sometimes see on grand scales through evil leaders. And uh, and I think that's what we're going to learn about next, you know, as, as David comes on the scene, who, although being a so-called man after God's own heart, according to the scriptures, isn't sinless, but he points forward to the one who was. In our last few minutes of the program, anything else you want to share with the people before we close? You know, Saul was, uh, he was an impressive uh, physical specimen. He was tall. Uh, he, uh, you know, he was uh, impressive. And you're going to have this transition from Saul, who was tall and impressive, and you're going to have you know, David, uh, who is a child, and he is, um, you know, the least of his brothers. Uh, so from greatness in the world's eyes to somebody who is despised in the world's eyes. Uh, and that'll be a, a neat contrast. That will be, you know, I always enjoy David. David's one of my favorite characters, favorite people in the Bible. Uh, but, you know, Saul is, uh, Saul is, uh, he is a dunderhead. <laughs> That's a I theological uh, explanation. Sometimes we'll read from the gospel according to Mo Howard, and uh, he's, a, he's a knucklehead. I love it. That's that's how we're going to end the show this morning. Saul is a knucklehead. Just wait until you see the next guy. He's going to be better. Oh, folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Luke Brown, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Ellsworth, Kansas. Thanks, pastor, for being on the show. Well, thank you. Tomorrow, we are going to turn the page to chapter 16. In this chapter, God sends Samuel to anoint a new king from Jesse's sons in Bethlehem. Samuel thinks the eldest son, Eliab, is the chosen one, but God tells him to look at the heart, not the appearance. Samuel rejects seven sons until he sees the youngest, David, who is a shepherd tending the sheep. And God tells Samuel to anoint David as the king of Israel. So until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hand.